becomes one of them. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. Space Zombies. Hello to you boys and ghouls. Welcome to episode 7 of Disgusting Awful. I'm the Meat Macabre. Joined as always by my partner on the journey through these creepy pleasures, the poltergeist himself, Danny, the Scottish juggler. And Danny, my friend, it is good to be on the road with you again, my man. Here we are again, and we're going to be looking at a 1978 masterclass, aren't we? We most certainly are. So, we have pulled over into the car park of the Munroville Mall to talk about one of the many classics produced by one of the godfathers of modern horror, George A. Romero's opus, Dawn of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. This situation must be controlled before it's too late. They are multiplying too rapidly. Dawn of the dead. Meet me on the roof at nine o'clock. Get out. I don't believe it. We're going to get out in the chopper. We've got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. They kill for one reason. They kill for food. They eat their victims. Imagine, if you will, that something has gone terribly wrong. Shoot it, man. Now, except the fact that there's no escaping the horrible consequences, George Romero brings back the dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. We must not be lulled by the concept that these are our family members or our friends. They are not. They will not respond to such emotions. Operator dead. Post abandoned. You may never get out of the room. It's everywhere. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. We've got a war. I'm afraid. We have spawned our own savagery. Soon, it will consume us all. It is a horrible, hauntingly accurate vision of the mindless excesses of a society gone mad. We are down to the line, folks. We are down to the line. Dawn of the Dead. So, Danny, I honestly cannot believe that it's taken me seven months to suggest this film. As in all honesty, it's practically perfect to me. Had you seen this film before I suggested it, bud? 
I had seen, uh, I have a very, very strong memory of being at school in 2004 and uh, there was a bus stop that had the remake poster all splattered all over it mm. and I remember it frightening me so badly that I swore never to watch either film but then I did end, <laughs> years later I did end up watching the, re, um, the remake but I'd never seen the original until you had suggested it and I was blown away oh well I'm I'm so glad I've been able to do that for you I mean this this film's nearly 50 years old isn't it pal wow yeah when you say it like that as well it's like it just yeah it doesn't feel like it but what i'm interested in as well chris is when did you first see this film okay so um like like a lot of the movies that we're talking about this film was one of my dusty car boot sale finds on vhs back in the day so um i first watched this on a gray afternoon in 1999 funnily enough given what we've just been talking about on one man's meat after a massive carvery and I think it's a testament to how Romero set his films in normal everyday situations that you don't need to have the lights out and the curtains drawn for this to still be a fright fest. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, to me, it ages very well. It really does. I mean, you almost don't need a, a remake, really, to be honest with you. I mean, when I was watching this, I was thinking, this holds up just incredibly well. This could be a 1988 film. It really could. I mean, um, yeah, to, to give more caveat to that, mate, um, I very recently watched a 4K transfer of this film. And the thing with a lot of the older films is that when they start bringing them into some of the newer formats, it it can take away some of the qualities of it because they, they clean everything up or at least try to. And with certain films, it just doesn't work. But with this, honestly, uh, I mean, given the penchant for the fashions of of right now as well you would almost think that this film was a couple of years old that that the transfer is that good yeah definitely it's something i need to see on blu-ray but um i've uh, especially 4k but i watched this on youtube um and uh, just the other day and even in that um it's like it still holds up cool uh so on on youtube is that the um is that still the 126 minute cut? Because there's a couple of versions of this out there, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, no, the first version I, I chose was the extra long version. So I was thinking, oh, yeah, wow. okay. nearly three hours long. Um, but I thought if I'm going to review this, then this has to be the really long version. What about you, mate? Well, uh, you, you might be able to jump in with some stuff then, buddy, because um, I'm I'm actually waiting for the availability of that cut. I, I generally didn't realise that it was on YouTube, but uh, there's a, a box set that's got every available cut of this, and um, I'm, I'm currently waiting for it to be available, but when it is available, it's going to cost me about 70 quid. Oh, yeah, big time. There's uh, one on uh, Amazon, I don't know if you have it, where it has um, the poster and a, f a couple of other extras, like a T-shirt with it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the one that I'm waiting on being available again. But uh, yeah, once it's there, the frame's ready for the poster and that T-shirt's never getting worn, I'm telling you now. That's going to get framed as well. Of course, yeah. I mean, just just before we get into it, I mean, just the, the poster itself is very visual as well. It's very cool as well, isn't it? Just Yeah, it's, it's one of those early examples of 
the power of an image. I mean, you know, the thing with, I mean, this film especially, but it goes on a lot more with, with Romero's films, is that there's certain zombies in his films that people remember and they get particular names. And this is this is the famous artistic reimagining of Airport Zombie, the guy that gets um, shot from a distance. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, even now, it's just a timeless piece of cinematic artwork, isn't it? It really is. And it goes back to something we've said on this show, is maybe the 70s may have been the best decade for horrors. Yeah, I mean, Everything was new, but at, at the same time, it lays the blueprint for a lot of things that still happen in the modern genre. I, I definitely say that about um, George Romero's films. Um, definitely, he, he had an eye for horror cinematography, particularly with zombies, and a lot of his stuff is still being referenced today for modern zombie movies, isn't it? It really is, and... Um... Those are people who watch Shaun of the Dead. Um, Shaun of the Dead pays homage to some scenes in this and some of the music oh, yeah. in this that I noticed straight off the bat, especially the music. It was like, wow, I've heard that on Shaun of the Dead. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, I think they lean very heavily from um, Dario Argento's soundtrack to this film. So, yeah, there's a lot of things on there that... Yeah, I mean it's that's that's the most the most of a homage to pop culture. But yeah, there's there's a lot going on with this film as as we will speak about. But um, I I just need to say to uh, to the offerators out there that uh, if you haven't watched this film before, listeners, or I should say Dan Griffin, there obviously will be quite the spoiler filled discussion of the events, but. Given that this film has a runtime of, well, for me, just over two hours, but for Danny, just under three hours, this isn't going to be a shot-for-shot discussion. But we will be discussing the key points as well as elements that we enjoyed um, within the parts of the film that we talk about. But before we get to that, we just need to run through some of the background to the movie and its production, as per usual. So, Danny, are you ready to go? Absolutely, mate. Let's get into it. Let's get into it indeed. So, if you didn't already know, ladies and gentlemen, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead is a 1978 zombie horror film written, directed and edited by George Romero himself and produced by long-term partner Richard P. Rubenstein. It's an American-Italian international co-production and is the second film in Romero's series of zombie films. And though it contains no characters or settings from the preceding film, Night of the Living Dead, it shows the larger scale effects of a zombie apocalypse on society. In the film, a phenomenon of unidentified origin has caused the reanimation of the dead who prey on human flesh. David M.G., Ken Foray, Scott Reiniger and Galen Ross star as survivors of the outbreak who barricade themselves inside a suburban shopping mall amid mass hysteria. Now, Danny, this may be a controversial take, but I genuinely believe that without Night of the Living Dead, the zombie genre as we know it wouldn't be a thing. We'd have no Resident Evil series, The Walking Dead wouldn't be a thing, and Asda's bargain DVD shelves would look very bare indeed. What do you think, mate? (laughs) That's a great point, Chris. Um, Yeah, 100%. I mean, Night of the Living Dead was the original. That's something that is also on YouTube as well, and... Mm. 
um, yeah, that I mean, especially the black and white version, I find is more enjoyable than the color version, just oh, because of the time time definitely. frame and the story is very easy to understand, but yet so scary as well. Yeah, it is, and I'm I'm sure we will go backwards at some point and look at that because uh, we can't call ourselves a horror podcast without looking at it, can we? Really, especially the origins, definitely, Chris. Yeah, and what's <laughs> more, what's most scary about um, this film and um, now of the living dead is how real it is and how real it comes off yeah it is and that's that's a testament to the clever writing of Romero's films because they always have a, an interesting social element to them but um, despite Night of the Living Dead being so revered Romero waited at least 10 years to make another zombie film to avoid being stereotyped as a horror director it was upon visiting the Monroeville Mall in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, with a friend whose company managed the complex, that he decided to use the location as a basis for the film's story. Now, it said, Danny, that the friend in question was Mark Mason of Oxford Development Company, who was more of a mutual friend, really, from Romero's alma mater of Carnegie Mellon University. So he gets Romero to visit the Monroeville Mall, and shows him hidden parts of the building itself, during which Romero noted the bliss of the consumers, which led Mason to jokingly suggest that someone would be able to survive in the mall should an emergency ever occur. And this was the inspiration that Romero needed to write the screenplay for the film. I mean, talk about fortuitous, eh? Definitely. It's very similar to the origin story of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where somebody was in... Uh a um, hardware store and uh, they wanted to cut through the line so they looked at the chainsaws and thought oh that's a good way of cutting through lines <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> how what being in public will uh, inspire most definitely mate I, I didn't know that about Texas Chainsaw to be honest oh yeah definitely it's um that's where the origin started all right very cool so you're not just an encyclopedia of wrestling knowledge then mate it's uh it, it branches out into horror as well Yes, definitely. And maybe early 2000s uh, new metal as well. <laughs> oh, mate, that's that's our next project. It's got to be. Look out, Roach <laughs> Coach, we're coming for you. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Romero and his long-term producer, Richard Rubenstein, were unable to procure any domestic investors for the new project. But by chance... Word of the sequel reached Italian horror director Dario Argento, who was a fan of Night of the Living Dead and an early critical proponent of the film. Argento was eager to help the horror classic receive a sequel. So along with his brother Claudio and producer Alfredo Cuomo, the three of them met Romero and Rubenstein, helping to secure financing in exchange for international distribution rights. Argento invited Romero to Rome so that he would have a change of scenery while writing the screenplay. And the two could also discuss plot developments. Now, buddy, another name that springs to mind when discussing the heavyweights of zombie filmmaking in the 20th century has to be Dario Argento, doesn't it? Absolutely. And when you, you brought up this name earlier as well, Ken Foray, that man is associated with so many horror films. I mean, it's it's like what what films hasn't he been in? What what especially zombies, isn't it? 
I know, and uh, this is the thing, mate. I I, I can't prove it because it was at a time that, because of the circumstances I was in, I had to have my mobile phone switched off. But I still state to this day that I met Ken Ferrer in a departure lounge of a Paris airport. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I went up to him. I asked him if it was him and he said it was. Um, it was around the time of Devil's Reject, so he had the massive beard and the, the scuzzy don't approach me look. But uh, it was a very nice man. Um, I can't prove that it was him, but he said it was and that was good enough for me. Um, but yeah, I, I still say to this day that I kind of sort of met one of the nicer men in horror cinema. That's brilliant, Chris. I believe you. Oh, well, good man, because uh, I don't quite know if I believe myself, but there you go. <laughs> Romero was able to secure the availability of the Monroeville Mall, as well as additional financing through his connections with the mall's owners at Oxford Development. So once the casting was completed, principal shooting was scheduled to begin in Pennsylvania on November the 13th, 1977, and wrapped up in February 1978. Now, one of the more famous elements of this film are the amazing special effects and makeup that was created by Tom Savini, whose work on the film led to an extensive career creating similar effects for other horror films. And we cannot pass up a chance to talk about the genius of Tom Savini to work makeup miracles on a limited budget, can we, pal? Definitely. And I'm just blown away by that news that you just dropped. Was This was his uh, first film, was it? Like, first big film? It was his first big film, yeah. So, um... Savini had originally been offered the chance to provide special effects and makeup for Night of the Living Dead, but he was drafted into the US Army to serve in the Vietnam War, where he worked as a photographer. Therefore, he made his debut as an effects artist on Dawn of the Dead instead. Now, Savini had been known for his makeup in horror in some independent movies prior to this. But in his book explaining special effect techniques, I believe it's called Bizarro, Savini explains how his time in Vietnam had influenced his makeup effects for Dawn of the Dead. Now, I don't know if you've read Savini's book before, mate. I know I haven't. No, I haven't, no. No, but it certainly looks quite interesting. Like, um, you know, he apparently goes into great detail about his um, decisions, you know, to do with, like, the colour of skin and stuff based on what he saw out yeah. in the war field so yeah it certainly seems like a an interesting book if it's available definitely i might have to search that out because as you said such a legend and it's like there isn't a big horror film that he's not associated with or played some sort of part in is there i mean just his well, um, his work on masks and things like that and like you said like um body parts and things like that is so cool and the fact that this is his first like big film and is this good that is quite shocking to me i thought this would have been him 10 years in or something or five years in well i know that's that's the thing like you know you would you would easily think that that there was a industry veteran doing this makeup i mean really like for the time as well i mean i think it actually stands up today because i think um one of one of my well, my, my only issue, I should say, with modern zombie movies is I think they go a bit over the top with the makeup effect sometimes. I, I agree with that, yeah. It's less suspense these days and more, oh, how much blood can we get into a scene? Yeah, exactly. 
So uh, Savini had um, a relatively small team for the time. He had a, a crew of eight that assisted him in applying makeup to up to 300 extras each weekend during the shoot. And one of the members of his team was a bit part actor in this film, uh, a gentleman by the name of Joseph Palato, who would actually go on to play the lead villain in the film sequel, Day of the Dead. Well, that's interesting. That's something I've never seen, Day of the Dead. Hmm. So I think the part he plays in this film is the police captain um, around the start of the film that's asking if anyone's got any cigarettes. Oh, yes. Yeah, just at the beginning. Yeah, I I think that's him because he's got a very similar face to Captain Henry Rhodes, who is the lead villain in Day of the Dead. So I, I could be wrong. Uh, but I think that's who it is. That's cool, mate. We'll look that up and put it on the socials. We, we definitely will. And again, like that little fact there is, is one of the testaments to Romero's great gifts in helping to keep his budgets down. He would find relative unknowns from like Pittsburgh amateur dramatics groups um, and get them to star in his films. And uh, again, that, that's the thing with Ken Ferrer, like, this wasn't the first role he played, but it was his first major role. And apart from that, I think he did a lot of dinner theatre in Pittsburgh, I believe. Brilliant. I mean, look what it's led to. I mean, he was he's, Ken Foray was acting just so many, many years. I mean, like 30 years after this, he was still in movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, um, it just goes to show that Romero had an eye for talent, really. And... It certainly didn't uh, harm him any in keeping his budgets going as well, since they weren't like megastars. So. Yeah, that sometimes does make the best films when you don't know who that person is. It adds to more realism. It does. It does. So the makeup for the multitudes of extras in this film was a basic blue or grey tinge to the face of each extra. However, there were some featured zombies that would be seen close up or on screen longer than the others, so they had more time spent on their look. Many of these featured zombies became part of the fanfare, with nicknames based upon their look or activity. So, for example, we have Machete Zombie, Sweater Zombie, Nurse Zombie and Baseball Zombie. Now, Sweater Zombie was a gentleman by the name of Clayton Hill, who was described as a crew member as one of the most convincing zombies of the bunch, citing his skill at maintaining his stiff pose and rolling his eyes back into his head. Now, this is the gentleman that made sure that he was always making a meal of wandering about on the escalators while in character. So he was the guy that was always going in the opposite direction with a confused look on his face. I thought there was something about him. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I noticed about the zombies is um, when I was doing research for this, it was like some of them were amputees, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, they were, which, uh, you know, looked very um, effective in, in the way that yeah. some people lost parts and stuff. Yeah, I think that was a brilliant move. Yeah, in in terms of casting, that was actually really cool because you could do a lot of things with that, put fake arms and stuff, and then it would look so more, so much more convincing than someone just putting their arms behind their back or something. <laughs> That's it, definitely. And another great element of this was the fact that the ending of the film was changed at the last minute. So one of the famous scenes in this film uh, which is around the time that the police are raiding that project building and there's the exploding head in the tenement building scene. Yeah. 
So um, the head that was used was a cast of Galen Ross's head, which was supposed to be used in the original ending of the film that involved suicides rather than the escape scene being used. So that cast of that head ended up as the exploding head during the project building scene. So the head was filled with food scraps and was then shot with an actual shotgun in order to get the head to explode, which certainly was satisfyingly gory, wasn't it, mate? It really was, yeah. Hell of a visual. Mm. So, talking of visuals, Danny, uh, this will be my last little bit about makeup. One of the unintentional standout effects was the bright fluorescent colour of the fake blood that was used in the film. Savini was a massive critic of the blood product, which was produced by 3M, that do a lot of our dressings on the ward. But Romero thought it added to the film, claiming that it emphasised the comic book feel of the movie, which I suppose is fair enough, and it certainly didn't take away from the enjoyment of the film for me. No, it didn't for me either. I mean, what do you expect out of you see zombies? Um, yeah, it didn't add, it didn't decrease any of my enjoyment either. No, I mean, definitely not. I mean, um, for me, with my medical professional brain, it made a lot of sense for the blood to look like that because after a while, you you see it a lot if you happen to spill any blood. But, I mean, this would be also the same with dead people, I suppose. After a while, the blood starts to separate from the plasma and that's the kind of colour that comes out from it uh, due to the over-oxygenation. It looks quite realistic, to be fair. You only hear this from a medical professional on this podcast, people. <laughs> Too right. At least someone that's been lucky enough as a student to have spent some time in a in a morgue as well. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, that's cool. <laughs> One of the things that we've talked about at the start of this episode was um, the wonderful music that was used throughout all of the versions of this film. So in post-production, Romero and Argento edited separate versions of the film for their respective markets. And this allowed for different scores to be used. So Argento's version features a progressive rock score composed and performed by his frequent collaborators, Goblin, who are an Italian progressive rock band. While Romero's cut primarily favours stock cues from the DeWolf Music Library. A memorable piece of music from Romero's cut is The Gunk, which is a polka-style tune from the DeWolf Music Library written by Herbert Chapel, with a chorus of zombie moans added by Romero. And it's a bit of a toe-tapper as well, isn't it, mate? It's that one that goes da-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. And that's where I'm going to stop, or else I'm going to be doing that for 40 minutes. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's like... Um... It kind of settles you down like, with all this intense craziness going on, and then yes. you see something like that. I know, I noticed myself it was like, "Oh, blood pressure is going down now. That's pretty cool." But then it raises it back up when another intense scene happens. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, especially like they play it over the the end credits as well. When when all that like un- unbelievable tension has been ramped up, um, and you know, that's playing after it. I think it just helps to lighten the mood a little bit after everything that's gone on. Absolutely. Following the Italian premiere of the film on September the 1st, 1978, Dawn of the Dead was released in other markets the following year. Despite facing difficulties with various national censorship boards, particularly in the United States, where it was released unrated to improve its commercial prospects after it was given an X by the Motion Picture Association of America, In Britain, 
it was liable for seizure during the 1980s video nasties moral panic. Noted for its satirical portrayal of consumerism, Dawn of the Dead has received widespread critical acclaim since its initial release. Like its predecessor, it's garnered a large international cult following. And in 2008, it was chosen by Empire Magazine as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time. And that's movies, period, not just horror movies, which says a lot about Romero's gift for filmmaking, doesn't it, pal? It really does, yeah. That that just blows me away as well. It's like, wow, that's not... I mean, you think about the millions of films that have been made, <laughs> and uh, that's one of the top, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that is the reason why I will always say to Roger Ebert, shut up, dickhead, what do you know? <laughs> because of its kind of dual ownership between American and Italian, it's been followed by four official sequels from a Romero point of view, beginning with 1985's Day of the Dead. But because of its dual ownership, it has a separate series of unofficial Italian-made sequels, beginning with 1979's Zombie 2, because this film was known in Italy on the Argento cut as Zombie. But Dawn of the Dead also was another movie that could not avoid the mid-2000s remake treatment. And in 2004, Zack Snyder made his directorial debut to direct a screenplay penned by James Gunn. Now, the biggest changes to the movie were a bitchy new metal soundtrack and the replacement of slow shufflers with the fast-paced zombies from films like 28 Days Later, giving the film a more action-orientated film. Now, Danny, have you seen the remake? Did you enjoy it? And how do you like your zombies? Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, so I've seen it um, years later after it came out in 2004. Um, it is on YouTube, and um, I like oh, wow. it. I really like it. Um, I like the opening scene probably the best because it is really, really scary. And how do I like my zombies? To be honest, 28 Weeks Later is probably had the best zombies for me. Um, because it was way scarier when they can run at slash um, the remake of this as well. To me, I find it more horrifying that they can run and jump and, and they're more demented. Um, but that's a good question for me to ask you, Chris. How do you like your zombies? Uh, now, you see, um, I quite like a slow zombie, to be fair, purely because of this film, to be honest. So. We can we can talk about it now, I suppose, because I, I haven't really made room for it in the commentary, although feel free to when we get to it. But um, there's there's the bit where the two police lads have made their way through the security office and got what they've needed. And then Stephen goes in there later and there's that um, security guard zombie wandering about. And there's no real idea of where he actually may be. So it looks like he's somewhere off in the distance. And then suddenly he comes into contact with Stephen and it ramps up the tension. So so for me, when I first watched it and even going back to watching it now, and this is a film I've watched like at least in double figures, um, it still puts me on the edge of my seat purely because of the fact of, you know, while it's a, a slow moving zombie, this person can creep up on you at any time. And there's something to be said for that. Like, 
there's a lot to be said for the fact that they've prioritised clearing them all out in this film because they want to make sure that every nook and cranny is dealt with because even though they're quite slow in stature, if you leave them to their own devices, they can get to you if you take your eye off the ball. Do you know what I mean? I completely agree. Um, it's I think that's more down to the person who's being chased, the actor who's being chased, how good mm. and how convincing can they make the zombie feel as well. Um, and we don't really see that that much. These, I mean, The Walking Dead has um, slow-moving zombies, but I think they had fast-moving zombies at one point as well. And yeah. it's like, um, I think after the 90s, maybe they, or maybe after the 80s, they really started becoming runners. And then maybe it just added more new element of fear into them. But yeah, I can see your point about slow moving zombies. It adds more suspense. It does. And I think what they played to in The Walking Dead in particular is that the recently reanimated corpses started out as fast because there would still be the motor skills involved there. And then as they, kind of aged if you like that's when they would slow down because obviously um they were then kind of moving corpses rather than just recently reanimated so yeah um that's that's how they made that's how they kind of explained it there so yeah brilliant Hmm. so we again this is something that we talked about very briefly earlier but uh this film spawns a lot of references in the pop culture world doesn't it mate it does, yeah. You can see them all throughout the film. You can, uh, but you kind of see um, this. This especially comes with the advent of sampling uh, from the eighties onwards. But um, especially in the music world, like audio samples from this film have been repeatedly used in popular music um, from some of the bigger artists, like the English virtual band Gorillas, that use um, the intro to the film. Uh, in Demon Days and uh, a B-side of theirs, Hip Albatross, uh, uses a lot of samples from Dawn of the Dead to the point that um, one of the actual main zombies in this film, who was a filmmaker and composer, a guy by the name of John Harrison, who's the screwdriver zombie, you know, the, the guy that jumps out in the department store? Yeah. So they use so many samples from stuff that he made that he has a composing credit in a lot of gorillas music oh wow that's pretty cool yeah definitely and um uh, this is one for steve because i'm sure he's heard of these guys but um american death grind band mortician who due to my research for this film are currently my new favorite band they use the no more room in hell quote as the intro to their song zombie apocalypse which i can recommend danny i can't understand a word of what the guy's saying but musically, it's um, juggalotastic. Brilliant. I'll have to get Steve on to that, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, honestly, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's one of the many logos that he's got on his banner. But uh, yeah, they're a, they're a good band. And Steve, if you've not heard of them, search for Mortician on YouTube. I tell you now, mate, they're banging. And then uh, Kings of Metal Sampling, White Zombie, sampled dialogue of this film in their song psychoholic slag from the album la sexo devil music volume one and that's not a title that i've made up danny it exists i, I really i'm not surprised when it comes to rob zombie or white zombie <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't just go that far down in into the underground as um american alternative rock band my chemical romance who are basically green day for girls 
have a song called Early Sunsets Over Monroeville, which draws lyrical inspiration from the movie, while American shock rock band Murder Dolls take heavy inspiration from the film in their song Dawn of the Dead from the album Beyond the Valley of the Murder Dolls. But I wouldn't waste your time, Danny, because the song's rubbish. Oh, right. I was just about to write it down as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it does make sense that um, artists that are known for sampling would use iconic lines from this film, especially in kind of the rock and metal world, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's just um, that's such a classic. And then what like they could take samples from this and then everyone would remember. And, um, you know, this doesn't just um, extend to music. Um, are you familiar with a writer called Joe Hill? No. Who's that? So Joe Hill is the pen name for the son of Stephen King. And he writes a lot of short stories based on kind of events around classic horror movies. But one such story that he's wrote is called Bobby Conroy Comes Back from the Dead. And it's a story that takes place on the set of Dawn of the Dead that focuses on two extras playing zombies. Now, Daniel, don't get too excited because it's not really horror orientated. It's more of a kind of um, unrequited love thing about two extras that happen to have a relationship before. And this guy that goes through most of the story thinking that um, this son that's named after him or so he seems to think is his son when it isn't um it's um the husband of this girl but they kind of you're kind of left thinking that they're having an affair afterwards but it's kind of a departure from what joe hill normally does because he, he very much um takes after his dad and there's a lot of shows that you've probably seen before that are based on stories that he's written oh because uh, um I'll, that's another one i was just about to write down but it was like, um, I didn't know um, Stephen King's son actually wrote. Yeah, so if you look up Joe Hill, I've I've noticed that there's a lot of his books that now have covers from, like, modern-day movie posters that I recognise. Um, oh, there's, there's a film at the minute. I, I can't even think what it's called. It might be something like The Devil's Teeth or something like that. But the main image from the poster is this really, like overly white mask with big massive teeth and a top hat thing anyway I, i'm not going to know what it's called so it's 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 not going to make for good podcast uh but yeah if you look up joe hill there's stuff that you'll recognize that i probably don't but i think um i think the netflix series lock and key is based on a comic series that he wrote yeah i'll check that out because um we can put some of that on the socials as well oh definitely yeah um yeah it'll give some good um head scratches for the meatpacking community as to why we're putting it on there, weren't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've already talked about the Dawn of the Dead stuff, um, but I will say that one of the things that they did put on there that's very cool is a, a reworked version of the Gonk by um, Scratch DJ Kid Koala, which is quite cool. Um, it's a routine that I tried to replicate, but at the time, uh, this was back in my DJing days, obviously, but back in the day... Um, versions of the gonk on vinyl were ridiculously expensive so it's something that i never attempted i can imagine <laughs> <laughs> but i have found something very similar from um an excellent turntable list called dj e styles that will be on the end of this podcast so do please continue to tune in boys and girls and then my last bit of pop culture referencing daniel and surely 
you must know about this. But the 2006 video game Dead Rising is set in a shopping mall during a zombie outbreak and was at one point sued by the owners of Dawn of the Dead. Later releases of the game included a disclaimer specifically noting that it was not licensed or approved by the creators of the movie to which it bears resemblance. Now, Danny, I know that you glaze over a bit when I talk about video games, pal, but even you must have played Dead Rising. Unfortunately not. No, that's something. Oh, flipping it! <laughs> that's something I've never uh, ventured into. Um, was it a horror game? Yeah, it was. So, um, I mean, to be fair, it came out for the Xbox 360, which I think was kind of around the time that you'd stopped playing video games, wasn't it? No, no I was a PS2 boy. <laughs> exactly. That's Never the had thing. an Xbox. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it was um, Capcom's attempt to. So the thing with the Resident Evil games was from Resident Evil 4 onwards, it was less about zombies, wasn't it? And more about chemical yeah. stuff. So um, basically, they wanted to keep the zombie thing alive, and that was what Dead Rising was. And actually, it is—it's quite a fun little game. They—they they kind of play, played around a lot with the genre. So the the guy that you play is a an unfit war photographer. So kind of he's got a very set pace at which he walks at, and of course you can level up. But like as with any other game, it's like a a mixture between an action game and an RPG. But they, they make a lot of uh, levelling up through the use of photographs, since that's his work. So you can kind of take pictures for kind of action, um, spectacular, even sexy, which doesn't make a lot of sense with zombies, but there's a way that they work around it. Um, and yeah, it's it's a, re- it's a really cool concept and a really cool game, actually. And um, quite interestingly, they, they kind of play around with a timer. So you've got... Um, 72 hours in order to finish the storyline because it's going to finish anyway regardless of where you are in the game um but like it's not 72 actual hours it's one of these things where like um 20 minutes of real time works out to one hour uh but it's it's really cool it tells a cool story but again it's one of those games where because of the time constraints you can kind of create your own story within it as well so yeah, it's really interesting how it's played. And again, there's lots of um, Let's Plays of it on YouTube, so I at least recommend that you look at those, mate, because it's a really cool idea. Yeah, def- I'll definitely look at the um, YouTube videos of it and stuff. Good man. So, commercially and critically, the film did very well, grossing approximately $66 million worldwide on an initial budget of, and I can't believe I'm saying this, only six hundred and forty thousand dollars wow like even in 1978 for what they pulled off that has got to be a ridiculously small amount of money that has to be yeah i mean what can you say (laughs) i mean was the (laughs) horror genre that like unpopular that maybe everyone was just looking for like the action or love story films well, maybe. I mean, to be honest, I mean, what? It wasn't until the late 70s that we saw films like Halloween and Friday the 13th, really, was it? So I suppose, yep. like, the unrelenting action element of it wasn't quite there yet. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking maybe, um, 
you could argue like maybe the early 80s to the mid 80s late 80s and things like that is when it really got mainstream but mm. this was definitely laying the groundwork for those 80s and 90s films definitely so mate we have got a lot more to talk about with this film um especially um the social satire that romero inserts into the film uh but I think we're better off getting into that during our post-film discussion. So shall we get into it, pal, with our commentary for the movie? Absolutely. Let's do it, Matt. Wonderful. So, as originally said, the notes I've made are based on the theatrical cut of this movie, which is 126 minutes. So anything that's added by Danny about parts of the film that I'm not sure about will come from, uh, did you say it was in the extended cut? Is on YouTube? Yes, it's on YouTube in full, amazingly, just um, under three hours, just a smidge under. Wow. Okay, so again, Danny, if there's anything that you want to add based on what you've seen, please do, because if anything, it'll get me giddy to want to go and watch it. Absolutely, mate. Okay, so again, guys, like I say, this is not going to be shot for shot. It'll just be looking at the main points of the movie and then talking about some of the stuff that we have particularly enjoyed during our little talky-talky bits. But here we go. The United States is devastated by a mysterious plague that reanimates recently dead human beings as flesh-eating ghouls. At the dawn of the crisis, it's been reported that millions of people have died and reanimated. Despite the government's best efforts, social order is collapsing. Rural communities and the National Guard have been effective in fighting the zombie hordes in open country, but urban centres descend into chaos. And we see this a lot towards the beginning of the movie, Danny, where the city folk have seemingly done nothing and are all out of ideas. While we get lots of shots of the rednecks that are clearing out the more rural areas, don't we? Yeah, we do. It's a lot of chaos at the beginning. That's why one thing I wrote down on Marvel Notes was like, this opens with a state of panic. Yeah. At WGON TV, a television studio in Philadelphia, a heated debate is going on. And did you recognise the bearded gentleman here, Danny? No, I didn't. Who was that? George Romero. Oh, it was him. He was there. <laughs> yeah, so he is the guy that does that famous, like, the people who kill get up and kill. That's the guy. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. As, as I was watching this, I was, like, um, just so focused on the chaos and there was a lot of noise, wasn't there, and oh. uh, people panicking in the studio and things like that and not, not, not knowing what to do. And that's the thing, there's, there's an awful lot of chaos. So there's there's quick, speedy typing going on to try and get all of the open rescue stations going up amidst all the arguments that are going on between the producers. But amidst all this chaos, traffic reporter and helicopter pilot Stephen Andrews and his pregnant girlfriend, producer Fran Parker, are planning to take the station's helicopter to escape the city. Across town, Police SWAT officer Roger DeMarco and his team raid a low-income housing project whose mostly African-American and Latino tenants are defying the martial law of delivering their dead to the National Guard. The tenants and the officers exchange gunfire as the officers try to gain entry. Roger unsuccessfully tries to restrain Woolley, 
a brutal and racist officer after he maniacally kills several unarmed civilians. Woolley is shot dead by an officer from another unit, Peter Washington. And Woolley certainly had deserved to die stamped all over him, didn't he, Danny? Absolutely. I, I thought this scene was very realistic because you do have uh, people that would hide their um, loved ones that they thought mm. because they thought, oh, they'll get better. I mean, you see it in a lot of zombie films, but it's very humanistic to act like that. It's like, oh, man, you, you just be locked in a room and you'll be all right in a month or something like that. Yeah, very, mm. very, uh, really good opening. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, like, um, I, I'm quite a sentimental soul, buddy, and I could totally relate to the idea of the remaining survivors in the building wanting to keep their loved ones near them despite yeah. the dangers of doing so. Like, I can imagine that these people had all sorts of ideas running through their head because the dead don't continue to walk around, do they? Exactly. It's something we even see. Uh, we saw it in um, Resident Evil, the series, when that woman had her husband in the toilet. Chained. Yeah. So, I mean, they could have been drawn inspiration from this. So, I mean, we've seen it in loads of zombie films, but it's 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 just a human element, isn't it? It's like sometimes we don't know what's good for us because we want that person to just heal and we don't want exactly. them to just have their brains blown all over the place. <laughs> That's it. That's the thing. Like, you know, we, we all like to think that we would have the rational idea when stuff like this happens, but we forget about the human element of being human, don't we? Yeah, and uh, Sean of the Dead plays on this very well when Sean has to shoot his own mother in the head and that pub yes. scene. Yes. And you yeah, see him exactly. struggling. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, but the SWAT team do start to dispatch the reanimated dead that have injured or killed several tenants. A disillusioned Roger suggests that he and Peter desert the team and join up with Stephen, who is Roger's friend, in escaping the city. An elderly priest tells them that several zombies are confined in the basement. The two go there and take on the grim job of eliminating all of them. Later that night, Stephen discovers the dead body of a security operator who had been guarding a traffic helicopter belonging to his employer. Now, Danny, I, I don't know if it's just me. It's purely down to look on Stephen's face when he's putting the radio in. But I think we're led to believe that he's killed that fella to get the helicopter. Yeah, I kind of noticed that it was like, I mean, when you've got a chance of getting a helicopter during something like this, you'd definitely have to take it, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's it. And, you know, we, we are looking a lot about the kind of degeneration of human society. So, you know, while it's probably just a happy coincidence, I think it's purposely put in there in order for us to make our own decisions. Absolutely. Especially because, like, one of one of my big theories about Stephen is that he's probably not quite the good guy that he wants himself to be. Like, I'm I'm not saying that he's a a villain, but he's definitely not like Mister Nice Guy based on a lot of things that he comes out with. Yeah, hundred percent. Especially in desperate times in this film, yeah, he'll just turn people to the worst. <laughs> exactly. But after this discovery. Roger and Peter join Fran and Stephen at a police dock and then leave Philadelphia in the stolen helicopter. Following some close calls while stopping for fuel, the group comes across a shopping mall and decide to remain there since there's plenty of food, medicine and all kinds of consumables. Peter and Stephen camouflage the entrance to the stairwell which leads to their safe room 
and they block the mall entrances with trucks to keep the undead from penetrating. This involves driving through crowds of zombies who are indifferent to their own injuries and attempt to enter the trucks. Roger survives a particularly dangerous encounter and becomes reckless as a result and is soon bitten by the zombies. And this is where a lot of the group's encounters with the zombies are shown as well, because I particularly felt that the scene at the seemingly deserted airfield where they stopped to refill the helicopter was very tense and an excellent showcase of Savini's makeup and special effects work, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. And just shout out to all the location people as well, because, um, I mean, it's such a good idea to have them trapped in a shopping mall. I mean, you couldn't find a better place because you've got, like you said, uh, medicine and food and everything and every supply you can imagine. Yeah, that's the thing. And, of course, you know, they make... um, a great point of that for the rest of the film because obviously they they decide to stay there for a bit um so that little chunk of text that i've just read from is actually quite a massive part of this film like at least a good half an hour of it mate so before we move on is there anything from that particular bit that i've just pointed out that kind of sticks out to you with regards to kind of you know anything that stood out to you any any kind of tension or action or anything like that I think the desperation of um, driving through the zombies with the um, truck, I think mm. I enjoyed that most. And um, it was like very realistic. It was like, we have to get this truck back. And it's like, we don't care who we're running over. <laughs> so I kind of think that bit stuck out to me the most when I was watching this. Mm. Especially with Roger as well, because like they they have to go back at one point because he's left his hot wiring tools, hasn't he? And like yeah. that's what causes him to be bitten. And again... Like they say, it's it's a result of his recklessness because if things had gone scrimmingly, he wouldn't have forgotten his stuff, would he? Yeah, but exactly. It's it's because he's kind of gotten away with a near death experience, so he's taken his eye off the ball, and you know it, it kind of shows that kind of flawed nature of humanity, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it's like oh, I escaped it once and I'm invincible now, but then look mm. what happened. <laughs> well, exactly. That's it, poor guy. So after clearing the mall's interior of zombies. The four enjoy a hedonistic lifestyle with all of the goods available to them, furnishing their safe room with the mall's many commodities. But Roger eventually succumbs to his wounds and dies. And when he reanimates as a zombie, Peter shoots him in the head and later buries his body in the mall. And this is probably the most emotional part of the film, Danny, as as Roger showed himself to be quite the strong character. And for me... I think he's the glue that's keeping both sides of the group together due to him being a friend of Stephen's and a colleague of Peter's. And if anything, his departure from the group only makes the group aware of the isolation that the mall represents following his death because their kind of um, unity starts to dissipate following his death, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And it's like he was the lead. And it was like, oh, man, that, you're right. That is the most emotional um, part of this um, uh, this first half of the film. It was like, wow, like, they killed him off already. But, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite the blur, really, isn't it? Like like you say, you, you kind of just get used to the character. And and actually, he's, he's quite a fun character as well. And he, he kind of gets taken away, doesn't he? Yeah just on that part as well is that you'd think you'd survive if not all the film at least a big part of it or a bigger part of it yeah 
Sometime later, all emergency broadcast transmissions cease, suggesting that the government has collapsed. Now isolated for real, the three load some supplies into the helicopter in case they might need to leave suddenly. Fran gets Stephen to teach her how to fly in case he's killed or incapacitated. And of all the character development that we get, Fran's arc was the strongest, wasn't it? Like she certainly wasn't going to be another Barbara. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like that there. They had future planning involved as well, just in case he did um, get um, like murdered or something. He, um, they had backup plans. It wasn't just like a helpless thing or like a Barbara, as you uh, so eloquently put it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, you know, there was that sense of preparedness there, um, which is fantastic. And Fran was right to be cautious and well prepared. As we get a nomadic biker gang led by Tom Savini, that see the helicopter in flight and attempt to break into the mall, which is successful. They destroy the barriers and allow hundreds of zombies back inside. Despite having a fall black plan, should the mall be attacked, Stephen, overwhelmed by territorial rage over the mall, blindly fires on the looters, beginning a protracted battle. He gets shot and subsequently mauled by roaming ghouls, and I particularly love this scene where the zombies burst through the elevator to maul Stephen and his subsequent reveal as a reanimated corpse, Danny. Like, it happens in such a short time, but, like, the the constant cuts to the zombies and stuff, it's just, oh, it's, it's excellently shot, isn't it? It really is, yeah. And you can definitely tell so many other like, zombie films have taken a scene like this and um, just ran with it. But, yeah, really, really cool. Mm. When Stephen reanimates, he instinctively returns to the safe room and leads the undead to Fran and Peter. Peter kills the undead Stephen while Francine escapes to the roof. Peter, not wanting to leave, locks himself in a room and contemplates suicide. But when the zombies burst in, he has a change of heart and fights his way up to the roof, where he joins Fran. Having escaped and low on fuel, the two then fly away in their helicopter to an uncertain future. And believe it or not, buddy, the ending we see was actually perceived to be Romero's alternate ending. Did you know about this at all? No, I didn't. No, what was the original? So the ending that Romero originally envisioned saw Peter's brief suicide tease end with him actually killing himself. Fran would hear the gunshot and also lose hope, especially upon seeing the zombies approach the chopper. And she would basically kill herself by sticking her head in the helicopter's rotating blades. Wow. Now, this ending was at least partially shot, although no footage is known to exist. Wow. That's actually... I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I genuinely thought that's the ending that you'd prefer, you sick little monkey. <laughs> um... I mean, I don't know. Uh, it, uh, it is very brutal, very graphic, but it's like, nah. without that, you. I mean, if you do that, there's no chance. Like, I mean, you think, oh, like the zombies won at the end. But if with um, the reshot ending, it's like, yeah, there is hope for humanity. humanity. Mm. And uh, that's what Romero realised himself. So during production, he picked up on how Dawn of the Dead's turn was often much more light-hearted and upbeat than anything in Night of the Living Dead. 
so concluded that a more hopeful ending would be appropriate. Additionally, Romero had grown very attached to his core characters and didn't want them all to die, so he made the decision to go with the ending as seen in the final cut of the film. And again, as a sentimental old sod, I think he made the right decision, mate. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And then um, you can tell because like he made he had such a good time working on this film, and he must have grown close to them to not kill them off. <laughs> <laughs> But there you go, Danny. We have taken a two-hour movie, at least in its theatrical way, and kind of wrapped it up in a little 20-minute package. So do you fancy unpacking it a little bit more in our um, after-match discussion? Absolutely. Let's have let's get into it. Let's get into it. After us, they know we're still in here. They're after the place. They don't know why. They just remember. Remember that they want to be in here. What the hell are they? They're us. That's all. There's no more room in hell. What? It's something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. He used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. So, mate, as I previously mentioned, Romero loves to insert social satire into his films, and Dawn of the Dead is certainly no exception. Now, most obviously, this film is a critique of mass consumerism as Romero saw it in 1980s America. So, at the time of this being filmed, it seems as though the shopping mall was a new feature of the American landscape as one of the core characters asks what it is as they fly over it and another responds that it's one of those new shopping centres. Wow. So, yeah, so, um, yeah, so it was quite a new concept. And um, the men in particular become quite enamoured by the idea of staying in the mall once they experience the thrills of shopping and consuming with complete abandon. Um, they even turn the, the sound system on so they can have a little music while they clear the mall of zombies. However, they can't figure out how to get rid of the sound system of the mall alerts. So we get these scenes of complete zombie obliteration that are interspersed with a female clerk's voice encouraging shoppers to pick up a free bag of candy with any purchase, which again <laughs> kind of ties into the the view of mindless consumerism, I think. It's brilliantly uh, put together on there. It is. And, I mean, the zombies themselves also seem to return to the mall for a similar reason, because um, one of the group points out that the mall must have been an important place for them and that their instincts and habits from their life must have caused them to return there because it's what they know, which would become a theme running through most modern zombie movies, wouldn't it? That there's like a lot of muscle memory involved in the reanimated dead. Definitely. And familiarity. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
which again is um, a theme that runs through quite a lot in the film, especially when we look at kind of how the zombies evolve later on. Um, but then we get the instances where the bikers start to enter the mall and there's more like perceived evils of consumerism displayed. So the bikers are a little bit different to the group that have come into the mall in the first place because they're not taking things to enjoy them, but simply to destroy them, which is perhaps, well, as most, re- as most um, academic minds would say, is probably the most true definition of consumption in that we don't take it to enjoy it, we take it to break it down to its most base form. Absolutely. And it's like um, you're, you're, they're just doing it to raise chaos. Well, that's it. Like um, at one moment, for example, they, they even rip the jewellery off one of the undead, even though we're witnessing a breakdown of society's norms to the extent that money and other valuable items have completely lost their value, haven't they? Yeah, they mean nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. So, again, this is probably an idea of like the bikers returning to their old habits, just like the zombies would. So it's kind of there's no discrimination there between the habits of the dead and the habits of the living. Yeah, that's greatly put as well. Mm. Um, But kind of looking into the whole point of consumerism, it's not kind of just about take, take, take. There's this there's this moment between Francine and baseball zombie, which is the guy in the baseball uniform um that kind of sits down and looks at her between the window and it's a another clever way from Romero to point at consumerism so the the way that he's filmed it, it shows him as like almost human so we we get a lot of like close looks at his face where he's wearing this really pitiful expression where he's, he's locking eyes with Fran and the two share what seems to be a really sympathetic moment, which is able to happen because they're sitting at separate ends of this glass. So the zombie is sitting outside of the glass in the hallway and his main purpose as a zombie is to consume human flesh. So it's this really clever double meaning where the zombie's staring at Francine as if she's just another commodity within the mall that he longs to earn but he's just out of reach. And it, it, so it's really quite deep when you think about it, isn't it? It is. It's very much um, like sort of character development. It's like, um, he, we, you know what he wants, but he just can't get it. It's like, like you say, out of reach. And it's like, you can see the hunger in his eyes. And furthermore, when, when all available entrances get blocked off by the heroes of the piece, the zombies are still trying to get into them all. And it's, it's a, a never ending attempt as, the memories from their former selves are reminding them that this is once a place that they needed to be at. Like there's a, a compulsion to be there so that they're only acting on their ravenous instincts to feed on the flesh of the living. But in life, there would have been crowds of people window shopping on weekdays, flocking to the shops on days off, on weekends, you know, during those big retail sales, you know, to get their bargains on things that they don't actually need so it's this kind of contrast between a, an equally excessive obsession to, to satisfy their gluttony, whether it be for human flesh or for materialism. So Romero makes this correlation by showing this through the movie between the zombies and the mindless consumers of the living. So they, they don't know why they want what they want. They just know that they want it. 
they need to be satisfied and it's kind of like um you put up a, a mirror to society isn't it mm. and it is because you know we we still see this a lot now don't we like in a lot of ways you know we we know that there's things that we we need in life you know we we need food we need shelter we need basic human amenities but we all have stuff that we just want and we will think of a way to get it whether it be rational or irrational and it's kind of it's shown in its most extreme senses here but it's kind of Romero's making this point of while there's a major difference between the living and the dead there's there's things that are very much similar in that yeah. there's there's a basic purpose going on between both parties here and and the lengths that they will go to to get it absolutely mate mm. so especially in the final third of this movie we get to see humanity's unwillingness to work together during um well the the chaotic climax of this film um but we also see hints of the zombies ability to evolve because they're the ones that are actually working together towards the end of the film because they all want the same thing so We've got the bikers that want to destroy what's already been put up here. We've got our group of heroes that want to not only keep the safety of them all, but also keep all of the luxuries that they've got. Whereas the zombies have got one thing in mind and they just want to eat whatever is in front of them. Absolutely. So that's it. And we can kind of see the beginnings of their evolution during the final scene. So... Um, Peter's making his getaway through a crowd of the undead uh, to the helicopter that Fran's piloting and one of the zombies grabs his rifle which Peter just lets him have and the zombie takes it he raises it and then he looks at it curiously so this is a hint to what Romero's going to start exploring further in Day of the Dead and Land of the Dead but it's interesting to see those first few seeds of kind of evolving happen isn't it it is, yeah, and it's like, um, what is going to happen in the future? Yeah, definitely. So that's that's the main talking point of this film is is the evils of consumerism. But I I don't think we can kind of go much further without talking about the the excellent cast of um, initial unknowns of this film, is it, mate? I mean, it's it's an amazing ensemble cast throughout in this film. It is really. That's what we were talking about earlier. Before it's like um, the, sometimes the best films have the unknown actors and things like that. They they do. I mean, and and obviously, I think it's a testament to the excellent script as well that you know these characters are are fleshed out to a point that you like you know some of the the hungrier unknown actors out there will research their character based on what's written down in order to become memorable. You know what I mean? Absolutely, there's no, there's no ego there. So, they, like you said, they're hungry, so they want they want the part, so they're going to perform their best. Mm. And that's it. Like it's it's just really clever, to be honest. Like kind of how he's how he's put this cast together, and th there's a lot of parallels between this film and Night of the Living Dead. So we get a very strong African American protagonist in Peter. Whereas in Night of the Living Dead, we have Ben, who ends up being the main actor, who, you know, just happens to be black. 
Um, so again, we've got that correlation there as well. And of course, we've also got the fact that Romero loves having a strong female character in his film. So the character of Francine is a really fascinating female character because, again, it's that female character that he wants, like we've got from Night of the Living Dead, but she's a complete departure from Barbara. Like, this isn't somebody that's going to break down based on what she's seen. If anything, the breakdown of society is the making of her, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it is as well because, you know, she, she remains rational. She remains capable of thinking on her feet. Um, you know, she, she makes it known early on that she's not going to be the little woman that cooks and cleans like she wants to be prepared for everything that happens i don't know whether it comes from the survival instinct of being pregnant or not but there's just something about her that makes her this very headstrong character isn't it absolutely yeah 100 percent. because it's like she you can identify with her because you want you want her to survive at the end and you do and that's it and it's I don't think it's got anything to do with her kind of um, medical condition as well. I, I think it's just the point that, you know, she's been written as a an independent character. She refuses to accept any special treatment. Um, her Even her refusal of marriage, like, it creates a much different figure uh, than Barbara. And, and as well, um, Galen Ross, when looking into her character, she refused to scream throughout filming. Because her argument to Romero is that because of the character that he'd written, she would refuse to be scared by what was around her. She would just let her survival instincts kick in because oh, otherwise it would weaken her image for the audience. That's pretty cool to learn. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. Oh. And I think I think that is the beauty of like the more independently minded horror films. Like like I say, because because the actors are kind of plucked from obscurity and they're they're keen to be known, that they look more into their character. So an ability to research and know your character makes what you're watching a lot more believable, doesn't it? It does, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've obviously watched different cuts of this film, and uh, this film, Dawn of the Dead, received a number of recuts and re-edits, uh, due mostly to um, the rights to edit the film belonging to Dario Argento in order for the international release. So he controls the final cut of the film for the English language territories. So while what we get on uh, bog standard DVD is Romero's cut, the Argento cut has about seven minutes cut from it um, in order to create better pacing. But it takes away from the story. So for me, while I'm very interested to watch the extended cut, I think the cut that Romero gives us is actually quite perfect because it tells a story while keeping the action running, you know? Definitely, I must check that out. Mm. So critically, Rotten Tomatoes reports that 94% of the surveyed critics gave the film a positive review, with an average rating of 8.6 out of 10, with a critical consensus reading that this film is one of the most compelling and entertaining zombie films ever, perfectly blending pure horror and gore with social commentary on material society. And I know I gave this guy a negative light earlier, but Roger Ebert gave this film four stars out of four and proclaimed it one of the best horror films ever made. While conceding Dawn of the Dead to be gruesome, sickening, disgusting, violent, brutal and appalling, he said that nobody ever said art had to be in good taste. 
And I'm quite shocked, Danny, because we found a horror film that Roger Ebert actually likes. I was just about to say, is that, wow, that has to be shocker of the year. It only took us seven episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. It might not take us that long to find another one he likes, but I quite doubt it, to be fair. It might need to be <laughs> Romero. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Consequentially, Steve Biedrowski of Cine Fantastique praised the film as well, calling it a broader version of Night of the Living Dead and gave particular credit to the acting and the themes that he explored. The acting performances, he says, are uniformly strong, and the script develops its themes more explicitly, with obvious satirical jabs at modern consumer society, as epitomised by the indoor shopping mall, where a small band of human survivors take shelter from the zombie plague sweeping the country. He went on to say that Dawn of the Dead was a savage, if tongue-in-cheek, attack on the foibles of modern society, showcasing explicit gore and horror, and turning them into a form of art. However, similar to the preceding Night of the Living Dead, some critical reviewers did not like the gory special effects. Particularly displeased at the large amount of gore and graphic violence was the New York Times critic Janet Maslin who claimed that she walked out after the first 15 minutes due to a pet peeve about flesh-eating zombies who never stop slacking. And Jean Shalit of NBC's Today Show dismissed it as yawn of the living. Others, particularly Variety, attacked the film's writing, suggesting that the violence and gore detracts from any development of the characters, making them uninteresting, resulting in a loss of impact. Variety wrote, Dawn pummels the viewer with a series of more grisly events shootings, knifings and flesh-tearing that makes Romero special effects man Tom Savini the real star of the film. But she lambasts the rest of the main cast, stating that the actors are as woodenly uninteresting as the characters they play. So you can't please everybody, can you? No, you can't, just when you thought we could. But um, that was pretty harsh, wasn't it? Yawn of the Dead. Ooh. Well, that's it. And I've, I've got to be quite honest from what Janet Masling talked about, I think the first 15 minutes are actually quite tame, so I don't know what film she was watching. Like, <laughs> violence-wise, like, nothing really ramps up until, like, the last half hour, does it? No, no, but there's still plenty of action in the opening. It's like, uh, um, I said it earlier, like, a lot of um, chaos and, um, like, panic and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the scene in the project building is quite full-on, really, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah. So... Whatever way you look at it, the general consensus is that the film is one of the few sequels that is superior to the original. So as well as being selected as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time by Empire magazine in 2008, Dawn of the Dead was also named as one of the best thousand movies ever made in a list published by the New York Times. In 2016, Playboy magazine ranked the film number 10 on a list of 15 sequels that are better than the originals. Furthermore, the 25th anniversary issue of Fangoria named it the best horror film of 1979, although it was released a year earlier. <laughs> and Entertainment Weekly ranked it number 27 on a list of the top 50 cult films. High praise, especially from Playboy magazine. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, when you, when you look at... Um, cinematic critiquing of, on a on a general excellent scale you think of playboy magazine don't you of course it's right up there with fangoria <laughs> oh totally 
totally. Yeah, I had to laugh at what Fang Fangaria said because they would have been quite in the know. So um, obviously they knew that that was down to, you know, kind of the the slow pace of, of the film coming out, really, in that it wasn't known to a lot of people until the following year, I suppose. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's a good point. I just thought that they put 1979 because um so many good ones so many good films were released in 1978 that they couldn't justify putting that as film of the year but i think your explanation is more um makes more sense (laughs) well that's it because i think i think the premiere itself wasn't until late 1978 because you know it was taking them that long to get it distributed so yeah i think i think in the um, the article that was written by Fangori, they put the disclaimer there in that, you know, this film was over a year old before we saw it over here, but it's the best film of this particular year. So, yeah, that is quite cool, really, you know. Yeah, definitely. But, Danny, whatever the critics think, all I'm bothered about is what you think about Dawn of the Dead, mate. I enjoyed it, um, especially the first time watching it. Um, I really really enjoyed it i sat here um i think it was wednesday wasn't it? i messaged you thinking it was the wrong it was the wrong film but uh yeah i watched it um absolutely enjoyed it yeah it held up really well like i said at the beginning um yeah it, all big uh, praise from me um how about you mate so um surprise surprise mate i i love it um i mean to me it's Regardless of genre, it, it's the perfect movie. It's it's cleverly written, it's superbly acted, and as a postmodern blueprint on how to make an excellent zombie movie and a satirical perk of consumerism, I, I think it, it just ticks all the boxes. I mean, I, I say this a lot, but to anyone that hasn't watched this movie, give your head a bang and get it watched. Amen. Amen indeed. So Danny, talking about getting things watched, where are you taking us next time, dude? So for the next episode, um, I struggled with this, but I, we're going in back into the 2000s here. Ooh. And we're going to be looking at a film called 13 Ghosts. Have you seen it, Chris? I have. Now yeah. this is a remake, isn't it? Because there was an it original. Um, as I was researching this, I was thinking, oh, this sounds familiar. Um what I think it's best to do is watch the remake because uh, now we've just passed the 22-year anniversary of it and it is really it holds up really well. It does, and it's surprisingly scary given the certificate that it got as well because um, it's it's not the certificate that you expect, is it? No, it's not, actually. It's a 15, and um, it's like I was sat here, uh, I think it was last year, and it's the quick visuals that scare you the most. It's like they just pop mm. out of nowhere, and it's like, oh, it's that slicing, and yeah. But um, I'd really like to watch that one with you, Chris, for next time. Yeah. Well, let's let's do it. Let's let's look at some uh, ghosties and ghoulies, eh? Shall we? Absolutely. So we're going from zombies to ghosts. We certainly are, and why not? So, guys, we've had a leg stretch and a browse through damaged society. I couldn't find any skater jeans though, and some of the locals were a little bit bitey. We're back on the road and heading happily towards our next destination. In fact, there's quite an opulent looking house on the way up. Maybe we'll stop in and see if we can stay the night. But we will see you again in a few weeks. But in the meantime, 
and in between time, stay safe, boys and ghouls.